young girls, Addie Mae Collins and Cynthia Weston. You're listening to the audio production of The Color of Compromise Audio Lectures by Jamar Tisby, published by Zondervan and presented by the author. These audio lectures are a unique learning experience. Unlike a traditional audiobook's direct narration of a book's text, The Color of Compromise includes high-quality live recordings that cover the important points from each chapter, as well as relevant material from other sources. On September 15, 1963, four young girls, Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, prepared for Youth Day Sunday service at 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. They were making final adjustments on their white dresses when the bomb exploded. The blast killed all four girls and injured at least 20 others. A newspaper report at the time indicated that all the church's windows had been blown out except one. It showed Christ leading a group of children. The next day, a young white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. got up in front of a group of his peers and he asked them a question. Who did it? Who threw that bomb? The answer should be, we all did it. In that very statement, Charles Morgan Jr. gets at the essence of complicity. You see, the most egregious acts of racism can only occur within a context of compromise. History and scripture teach us there can be no reconciliation without repentance. And there can be no repentance without confession. There can be no confession without truth. The color of compromise tells the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. Why did we call this video series The Color of Compromise? Well, because it tells the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. And that word complicity is important. It's going to be important throughout this series because it gets at the idea that not every Christian was this foaming at the mouth racist. Not everyone was burning crosses or putting on white hoods and robes. Not everyone was attending or cheering on lynchings or anything like that. But does speak to the notion that throughout the course of U.S. history, when Christians had the opportunity to decisively oppose the racism in their midst, all too often they chose silence, they chose passivity. The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. Sometimes I ask myself, why did I ever talk about a topic like racism in the church? It's just not a popular topic. But it's really because I love the church and I want to see the church become healthier. I like the way Martin Luther King Jr. put it. He said, like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be opened with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. 
Injustice must be exposed, with all the tension its exposure creates, to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. So in a similar way, I want to reveal the truth about the American church's complicity with racism to uncover it and expose it to the light of attention. And in that way, perhaps we can begin to heal these wounds. Before we get going any further, a lot of people use the term racism, but never really define it. I want to make sure that we're clear up front by what I mean by the word racism. I borrow from an author, Beverly Daniel Tatum, and her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? In that book, she says, racism is a system of oppression based on race. Or, a more shorthand definition, it's prejudice plus power. Notice in both of those phrasings, there's a focus on power and systems, that, that, that racism enacts itself not just in interpersonal ways, but through institutions and policies. Now, there are notable exceptions, but historically speaking, when it comes to racism in this prejudice plus power form, in this system of oppression based on race, white churches have chosen to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. In fact, complicity might be kind of a weak word. Historian Carolyn DuPont puts it this way. Not only did white Christians fail to fight for black equality, they often labored mightily against it. Christians often proactively helped create a social caste system based on race. That's what we're going to talk about through means of a historical survey. Now, when I looked at other studies of race and racism and the church, what I noticed is that very few of them took history as the main vehicle to convey their point. And so I thought it would be important to focus on the ways that American Christians actually acted in the past in ways that showed complicity with racism. But this is a historical survey. And a survey is simply an introduction to further study. And this is especially true in this series. There are going to be a whole lot of authors and books and examples and events and people that I've mentioned. And I'll not be able to give you all the details about each one of those things. So use it as an invitation to further study. A survey focuses on breadth, not depth. So I give examples from every period of American history in order to show how deep and pervasive the problem of racism and the church goes. Furthermore, I want to say up front that we're going to focus on black-white race relations. And this doesn't mean that other people groups aren't important. What I do is try to focus on what I know. And so I studied the black-white racial divide, and I try not to speak on that which I haven't studied as much. I also think that these racial dynamics between other groups are worthy of their own studies and their own research. I also think that as we study the black-white racial divide, it will give us clues about how to deal with other racial and ethnic divisions in society. So no matter what your personal racial or ethnic or national background, I think you can find some principles in this series that are going to apply to your particular context. 
as we go throughout this historical survey, there are a couple of themes that are going to come up again and again. One is that this historical survey of race in the American church reveals contingency. It's the idea that things didn't have to be this way. That throughout history, individuals and groups made choices, deliberate choices, and they could have made different choices. History is contextual, and certain people, certain organizations did make particular decisions, but they could have made other choices, and then our past would have been different than what we see it as now. The second theme is this. Racism never goes away. It just adapts. I think part of the problem in understanding race in the American church is this idea that racism is simply a problem of the past. Now, that's especially dangerous as we go throughout a historical survey and we talk about the past a lot, but don't fall into the trap of thinking that there is no more racism today. So we'll talk about throughout the video series how racism has changed forms throughout the era of slavery and then later Jim Crow segregation and now what I call a racialized society. But it never goes away. It just adapts. So why do we need to talk about race and religion or race and the American church? Well, again, quoting Martin Luther King Jr., he said, there can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. And I want that to come through in this video series. I love the church, but I hate racism. And I think we need to talk about it. And we need to talk about the ugly truth of racism in the American church's past, not to tear down the church, but in order to build it up. The Bible talks about speaking the truth in love for a purpose that the body might grow and mature and be strengthened, and the body is the church. And so we talk about racism and the American church in order that the body might be healthy. Now, as we talk about racism and the church, there's a distinct divide. I say the church, and that's a massive term. It means a lot of different things, and it encompasses a lot of different people. But when I say the American church, I'm really talking about the white church as it relates to Christian complicity in racism. And I don't get enough opportunity, unfortunately, in this particular series to talk about the black church. But I do want to pause and speak a word about the black church. Historically, the black church has been the ark of refuge and safety for black people. I'll say this in later segments, but the sad reality is that there would be no black church without racism in the white church. And the black church has received black people and nurtured black people in the midst of a society that endured slavery and permitted segregation and all kinds of brutality perpetuated against people of African descent. And in the midst of this, the black church has formed its own traditions its own beauty, its own history and heritage and legacy. And so many of us are indebted to the black church. And I think we should learn more about the teachings of black church traditions today. The black church has been indispensable in both the past and the present of black people to ensure their flourishing. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is going to be a difficult video series for many people. It's going to be hard to get through. It's going to be challenging, and that's for a lot of reasons. So there's a certain group of people who are going to object to the very premise that Christians have been complicit in racism. They are going to completely disagree with the idea that 
Christianity has somehow been a force that helped construct a racist society. They'll call studies like this and the ideas I'm proposing too liberal. They'll compare it to a Marxist communist ideology. They'll say it relies on critical race theory rather than the Christian teachings or the Bible. They'll say that calls for social justice are somehow abandoning the gospel. Or they'll point to counterexamples of Christians who resisted racism. I've heard it all. But what's going to become apparent throughout this series is that any of those rebuttals are actually pretty common. You see, Christians throughout the course of U.S. history who have attempted to fight for racial justice and against racism, they heard the same kind of objections too. And so for folks who do object to the very premise of a video series like this, I simply say, it's here when you're ready. This information is important. These events happen. And as Christians, we have to deal with it and we have to deal with our complicity in racism, both historically and in the present. This video series is going to be hard for other people for different reasons, though. There are going to be a lot of folks, I assume, who have to unlearn a narrative that you've been taught since childhood. A narrative that was given to you by trusted leaders like parents or pastors, theologians, and other people. And so it's going to take time to reframe your focus to see racism in all its ugliness and truth. I think sometimes you might even have to pause to absorb the facts of the American church's racial history. It is hard, tragic, heartbreaking history. And as humans who are at all empathetic, we're going to be hurt and pained by that. And so it's okay if you have to stop and think about things, take a break, and let it sink in. This is soul work, and it can't be rushed. Now, when I write about these things, and particularly if you are a white Christian, you might feel like this is all just a big guilt trip. It's all designed to make you feel bad about things you may not personally have been involved with, but are sort of on the receiving end because of your racial group. Well, the goal here is not guilt. But I wouldn't mind if we all experienced a bit of godly grief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So the idea of godly grief here is that there are things in our past to grieve over, to weep over, to lament about when it comes to racism and the American church. It's, it's the idea that, that as a
Chapter 1. How to Fight Racism Something is different this time. I could hardly believe I had just typed those words in a tweet for thousands of people to read. I study history. I have the receipts of this nation's racial failures. I am a black man in the United States. I know firsthand that racism still pervades our society. I am neither naive nor optimistic about issues of race in this country. But in the spring of 2020, a sustained movement of protests and uprisings began to roll through the United States and around the world. A viral cell phone video showed a white police officer kneeling for eight minutes and 46 seconds on the neck of a prostrate black man named George Floyd. The officer killed Floyd. And once again, a black human being had become a hashtag. This person, made in God's image and likeness, became another victim of racism, anti-black police brutality, and white supremacy. Floyd's murder was just the latest in a string of similar events leading up to the 2020 protests. Breonna Taylor had been killed in a barrage of bullets in a no-knock raid by police who had entered the wrong house. Video footage showing Ahmaud Arbery, a black man out for a jog in a predominantly white neighborhood in Georgia, exposed three white men who pursued, shot, and killed him. They thought he looked suspicious because he had stopped to look in a house that was under construction. They became a law unto themselves and executed Arbery in what many characterized as a modern-day lynching. Christian Cooper, a black man, birdwatching in Central Park in New York, saw a white woman with an unleashed dog. Park regulations clearly state that dogs need to be on a leash. When he asked her to follow the rules, she called the police on him. Video footage showed her talking to the dispatcher and feigning an imminent threat from Cooper, who stood calmly filming her tirade. Amid these and other similar events of racial profiling and anti-black police brutality, people once again raised the cry, Black Lives Matter. We had just been through a round of racial crises. As recently as 2014 and 2015, protesters had chanted Black Lives Matter in the wake of Mike Brown's death at the hands of a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. We saw the response of law enforcement who came out with tanks, guns, body armor, and tear gas against people protesting for basic dignity and rights. Yet that wave of anti-racist resistance rose and fell with a little positive change. We had seen the aftermath of a white supremacist entering the historic Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston and murdering nine black Christians after a Bible study. We had witnessed the deadly Unite the Right rally that brought together khaki-clad white people carrying tiki torches and demanding the protection of a Confederate monument. We even saw the election of a president regularly engaged in racist and violent rhetoric that seemed to embolden the basest desires of a certain segment of the population. We had no evidence that the results of protests in 2020 would be any different than all we had seen before. Yet I could not deny the facts. NASCAR banned Confederate flags at their races. Companies such as Nike and Uber gave employees a paid day off to commemorate Juneteenth, the 
oldest celebration of black emancipation in the United States. The Dixie Chicks became the Chicks. Confederate monuments came crashing down in cities around the country. Books about racial justice, written by black authors, including one of mine, packed the New York Times bestseller list like never before as people clamored for resources to understand our racial moment. This time did feel different. The rapid shifts we saw could hardly have been predicted just a few months prior. But the COVID-19 pandemic and years of grassroots pressure for change had built up pressure that erupted in a flood of unexpected changes. I, as well as the countless others who dedicated their lives to the cause of racial justice, felt encouraged, exhausted, excited, and skeptical all at once. Time will tell if the protests and uprisings of 2020 lead to lasting transformations in the United States. What is clear is that racial progress does not occur apart from the sustained efforts of people who dedicate themselves to fighting racism in all its forms. History demonstrates, and hope requires, the fundamental belief that when people of goodwill get together, they can find creative solutions to society's most pressing problems. How to fight racism. I have been publicly speaking and writing about racial justice for over a decade. From the Pacific to the Atlantic, from college students to clergy members, the most frequent question I receive about fighting racism is, what do we do? A growing swell of people recognize the fierce urgency of now when it comes to fighting racism. Maybe that's you. You realize racism, a system of oppression based on race, is a problem nationwide and worldwide. You understand that everyone is either fighting racism or supporting it, whether actively or passively. You want to be part of the solution, but you need guidance about what exactly you should be doing as an individual or within an institution to push back against the current racial caste system. How to fight racism is one response to the how-to question of racial justice. While there has been a proliferation of books on this topic in the past several years, there remains room for more works that focus on the specific methods and actions that can promote racial equity. This book prioritizes the practical. Note. Throughout this book, I often use the term equity rather than equality. The Lakeshore Ethnic Diversity Alliance website explains the difference this way. Equality aims to promote fairness. This is only effective if all participants have similar starting points and the same access to resources for achieving their desired goals. This approach can intentionally disregard the needs of individuals. Equity, on the other hand, demands that individual needs are taken into consideration. It accounts for identities, race, ethnicity, ability, nationality, gender, etc., and circumstances that may otherwise hinder the success of one participant over another. How to Fight Racism is structured around a model I created called the ARC of Racial Justice. ARC is an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. 
racism uses an array of tactics to deceive, denigrate, and dehumanize others. As fighters for racial justice, we need to become familiar with racist strategies to effectively counter them. That's where awareness comes in. It's the knowledge, information, and data required to fight racism. Awareness is the head portion of the head, hands, heart triumvirate. In this book, you will discover ways to increase your awareness by studying history, exploring your personal narrative, and grasping what God says about the dignity of the human person. All racial justice is relational. What sparks the desire for people to see change? How does someone develop a burden to combat racism? Often, it comes through relationships with other people who are most adversely affected by racist ideas and deeds. It is through knowing others that what we previously viewed as problems become people. It is by knowing other people, developing friendships and collegiality, that we can form the coalitions necessary to take on a society rife with racial bigotry. But often people stop there. I have black friends, they boast. We will address the shortcomings of such views later, but misapplications aside, you cannot have true racial justice without authentic relationships with people who are different from you. Besides building awareness and developing relationships, what truly enables broad-scale change on the racial justice front is a commitment to dismantle racist structures, laws, and policies. There is no amount of books you can read that will reduce the disproportionate rate at which people of color are incarcerated. There is no amount of probing coffee shop conversations you can have that will shift the racial segregation present in our public schools. To enact society-wide change, people must commit to deconstructing laws that have a disparate impact on people of different races and recreating the rules so they lead to greater equity among people of all races and ethnicities. Think of commitment as the hands aspect of the head hands, heart metaphor. The arc of racial justice provides helpful shorthand for a comprehensive approach to race reforms. Many of us gravitate toward one area or one component of this fight. Some love to devour books, articles, and documentaries about race to increase their knowledge. Others do admirable work forging relationships with people from a wide spectrum of backgrounds and experiences. Still others are activists on the front lines of protests and leading campaigns for radical change. These are all admirable steps. But a holistic approach to racial justice includes all three aspects, awareness, relationships, and commitment. Awareness, relationships, and commitment need not exist in perfect balance. The point of the model is not to practice an equal number of actions in each area. Rather, the goal is to keep all three areas in conversation and tension with one another. For instance, a college student can certainly build relationships and commit to racial justice, but college is an especially opportune time to build one's awareness through reading, writing, and learning from experts on campus. If one or two areas receive less attention due to your specific circumstances, that is fine. Just be sure to pay
periodically assess where you are putting your energy and think about how your focus may need to shift from time to time. Keeping the three areas intention and conversation ensures that no person or organization focuses on one area to the exclusion of the other areas. Rather, the three categories interact in a dance that changes cadence and rhythm according to the music of the moment. The arc of racial justice does not proceed in linear fashion. One does not progress from awareness to relationships to commitment, like following the steps to a recipe. Rather, you will grow in each area simultaneously, and sometimes one practice will build your capacity in multiple areas. For example, in the months leading up to an election, you may commit your time to helping potential voters get registered. During this season, you may build your awareness of particular policies and platforms under debate in the election, while also building new relationships with people in the community. The process of growing in awareness, relationships, and commitment never ends. You will always be learning. You will always be developing friendships, and you will always be discovering new ways to commit to a life of racial justice. The Journey Toward Racial Justice The subtitle of this book is Courageous Christianity and The Journey Toward Racial Justice. Thinking of racial justice as a journey helps us focus on each step without growing discouraged when we don't make the progress we desire. The destination is racial equity and justice for people of every racial and ethnic background. The end point is harmony, where unity in the midst of diversity prevails. But viewing racial justice as a journey encourages us to think about fighting racism as an ongoing series of steps rather than a final point of completion. Instead of defining success by the results we achieve, we should define it by the actions we take. The effectiveness of our actions is not solely determined by their outcomes, but also by the fact that we are taking steps forward and moving in the right direction.
This one is Sean Mendes, Summer of Love. And those other two were a little too spicy for me with all the N words and P words. Next artist is Princess Nokia. It's uh, called Slumber Party. And the artist is Ash Nico, A S H N I K K O, Ash Nico. Featuring Princess Nokia. Hear this for the first time. Well, no, we don't need her. We don't need her language.
it's a swam remix with a swam remix by Joji J O J I Joji and the title was I don't wanna waste my time. <laughs> We're gonna hear more from Swum. This one is Swisher. It's with an S. The next artist is called Chase Atlantic. C H A S E Chase at Atlantic. The title is Swim. Chase Atlantic Swim. The next one is by Isaac Zell. Z A L E. Isaac Zell. The title I See You. Three letters I See You. refreshing he didn't cuss his, cuss anybody out slap anybody in the face okay might want to hear more from Isaac Zell the next one is Brian Adams never heard him before his title is summer of 69. Summer of 
69. The next one, we're going back to hear swim. The title is Far Away. C-A-L-V-I-N, Calvin Harris. Its title is Summer. Calvin Harris will return to SWUM. The title, Show Me How. Show Me How. Forever in my mind. Forever in my mind, and the best for last, Kendrick Lamar. This one, swimming pools, parentheses, drank. Well, let's hear what this one is from our one and only. Kendrick. Just how you capitalize, this is parental advice, and apparently I'm over-influenced by what you are doing, I thought I was doing the most that someone said to me. Nigga, why you babysitting, only 
it every time oh Kendrick let's see what else they have in the database for Kendrick oh my Kendrick Lamar all the stars that's Kendrick and his sister SZA, spelling it S-Z-A, all the stars. Kendrick Lamar. They have him and Baby Keem, K-E-E-M, family ties with Kendrick, Baby Keem. Okay, we'll have to cut this. This segment and start a new one. Thank you for listening.
있을게 지금처럼 여기서 hey. 이 순간에서 나는 얘기 받았던 느낌 처음 마주친 순간에 우린 같은 곳을 보고 있었지 늘 찾아 헤매던 그림 앞에서 something like that they call techno trap or techno something they have samples of all kind of music well, now the the last time I heard uh, Jermaine Dupree talk about trap music he said that is really a, an, a sound of music 
that originated from Atlanta. But it's not the same as this. This music that we just heard. So it shows how talented artists are. They can mix all these different styles together and create something totally brand new, totally different, just through synthesizing different styles. Okay, there's another one in here. It's new. They spell it. Capital S, W, U, capital M, SWAM. And their title was With You, the letter U, With You. Wasn't he good or she good? Let's look them up. Everything else was music by Idealism. I-D-E-A-L-I-S-M. Idealism. Let's look up SWAM. S-W-U capital M. S. W U capital M and we'll end this segment and we'll come back with SWAM thank you for listening hi everybody how's everybody doing today well, it's September 23rd. It's only one week left in September 2021. Hmm. Is it my imagination or <laughs> is the year going that fast? Well, it's a Thursday. I could listen to some throwback music. Let's listen in to Spotify's online music. They own Anchor. The company that used to own this uh, podcast app, Anchor app, was bought by Spotify. And they're expanding their operation. They even have one program called Sounds Up. They're recruiting Latinx future podcasters. They have uh, training and mm, some some 
features and specials on offer for Latinx people interested in learning podcasting. So check them out on on anchor.fm online. Latin X and that program is called Sounds Up S O U N D S Capital U P Sounds Up was a group called Ideal, I-D-E-A-L, Ideal, Get Gone, Get the Hell On, <laughs> and of course, there's a hidden meaning. Everybody has it experienced in life a time where that was a message that needed to be said (laughs) get gone get the hell on yep well this is the time and this is the place need I say more There's more with that title. sound to it. The singer was Odessa O-D-E-S-Z-A. The title is How Did I Get Here? Oh, Get Gone by Ideal. Let's hear them. to my 
my collection okay well there's plenty of titles with that song plenty of uh, singers with that title get gone but that one is ideal D-E-A-L I-D-E-A-L Ideal Hmm It's uh Just sample tracks These are just sample tracks They don't play the whole Song They have music Tracks that you can add to your podcast. A new feature from uh, Spotify. But those those episodes will only appear on um, on Spotify under the podcaster's show title. It won't show on the on the regular podcast lineup for the the regular listeners on that one we were listening to Zach Brown band Whiskey's Gone Alan Jackson, let's hear him. The older I get. That's the truth. Funny how it feels. I'm just getting to my best years yet. The older I get. Jackson. And then you can always search for more music under that name if you want to hear more from that person. What I think I'll do is put in I-D-E-A-L instead of the song title and see what comes up that may bring up more songs by them may bring up the titles well you know how the the search engines will scoop up anything with the name with the t- with the letters I D E A L in the title or the author's name, the singer's name. But it, one good thing is for people who like to um, hear new songs or get new information. 
this this rule. This is one is Nagashi by Idealism. they have in the database because they sound just so wonderful and there's a long long list of samples let's hear them some more this one says how many stars are there by idealism so mellow I have to give them their own segment so this is going to stop right here then they're going to pick up with the next segment just dedicated to this author idealism thank you for listening have a great day and a great weekend stay healthy take care of yourself